Welcome to Did You Know, the podcast dedicated to telling the stories of the executives of colour who have led the way in the UK music business. Today we're in conversation with Amber Davis, head of A&R at Warner Chapel Music Publishing. As with all our guests, we like to ask them why they chose the music industry. Here's what Amber had to say when we asked her. It just started when I was super young and I did work experience when I was about 14 and it was the best week of my life. I didn't realise that stuffing envelopes and doing mail outs could be so much fun. And from that point onwards, that is why every summer I had my mind geared to do something in the music business. Back in the day, and I was doing a Jamelia mail out stuffing CDs. Back then there were CDs and um, there was a Beverly Knight campaign on the go and it was the best one week I ever had. With all I guess, I'm really interested to find out what your ambitions were when you were a little girl. Was it something you felt you wanted to be a part of? What was rocking the young Amber Davis's world when she was kind of, you know, coming through her teenage years? What was the music you were into? I guess I, I always loved music when I was younger. I remember getting my now whatever it would be back then, cassettes, you know, like now 19 or whatever, and always going through and picking out the songs that I really loved on each cassette. But I guess I've always loved music. It's always been there, you know, from, you know, the garage raves, things like that. But um, I guess I didn't always know what I did want to do. So I didn't actually realise you could have a career and get paid by working in music when I was younger. So it was something that as I say, I, I did this work experience and I was like, you, there's, there's actually this whole life behind being an artist and a musician. And even though I could play the piano and things like that, I never wanted to be an artist or anything like that. So when you suddenly realise there's a whole career to be had, whether it's in, you know, law, marketing, whatever, you know, it started from there, I suppose. So was music a big thing for you at home as well? Because quite often when we talk to a lot of the guests on the pod, Music around the home is one of the things that fuel their interest and, and becomes the initial driver to where they think they may want to get to later in their life. Was that the case for you as well? Um, a little bit. I mean, I, I wouldn't say so much so. Like, you know, my sister loved music. She's older than me. Um, so I was always intrigued to what she was listening to, whether it was, you know, Mary J. Blige or Prince and things like that. So, yeah, my my older big sister had a part to play just as in I, I love the music she would listen to. My father was into classical music, played the violin, um, but I, I wouldn't say I necessarily gravitated to that so much. Um, a bit of jazz. Yeah, music was always about, but I, I wouldn't say I was definitely from a household where it was prominent and at the forefront by any means, no. So when you were at school, I mean, you talk about this week of work experience that became the catalyst for your incredible career that you've had today. What was the ambition before music? Was there a world or a career that Amber wanted to, to be a part of before music? Honestly, I don't think there was. I think as a young child, maybe being a vet, but then there were particular animals I didn't want to deal with. <laughs> um, and then I sort of always liked the idea of maybe being a lawyer until I realised all the studying one needed to do for that. So yeah, it, it's, as I say, I guess back then I really didn't know. Let's talk about a week at EMI Records in what would have been, what, Brook Green back in the day. And, uh, you know, I remember Jamili well, because Jamili was signed by a, an old friend of mine, Lloyd Daddybug. 
Brown. So I don't know whether you ever came across him. So tell us about that week in EMI and tell us about the moment you knew that this was for you. I think it was just the sort of passion and care I had for the week that I was there. You know, people were scooting around the office, playing loud music, you know, all the artistic, creative visuals that were around. And it was a record label, just sort of seeing how everything happened just sort of really fascinated me back then. I walked into a building not even knowing really what a record label was back then, you know, and just had such an inspiring, energising week that that then just led me on to like researching more about the music business and how all these things happen behind the scenes. It just became like every summer, whether it was like a job, I worked in Virgin Megastore every weekend. There was an online magazine that I did some work for as well. I just sort of every summer, I would just apply myself to something music related and kept learning more and more about the different areas. So what happened to education? Was that something that was still a part of what you were doing? Was university a part of your life or? Yeah, I was still at school. I did my A-levels. And then after that, I actually didn't really have a huge desire to want to go to university, if I'm honest. And I think the more I'd sort of done work experience in music, I I sort of realised that having a degree wasn't essential to make it in this business. And um, yeah, I was really fortunate that I did actually get offered a a scouting position, but my, my mother quickly told me that I wasn't allowed to take it because she wanted her degree and I need to get my degree and I need the photo on the mantelpiece. I don't care (laughs) what you study, where you go, but you're not going to do this, what you call it, amber scouting. What? (laughs) So that just, that just wasn't an option. So I went and got my degree. I went to Westminster University um, and did the business degree there, uh, which was great because Keith Harris was a lecturer. I think many people know how brilliant his lectures were. And yeah, I, it was a really, it was a brilliant degree actually. And then after that is where I then sort of got a job at BMG briefly. And I was in the marketing department which I sort of in my naive state again thought would be sort of didn't realize it would be like raising POs shall we say I think there I was thinking it would be (laughs) designing album covers or something (laughs) not um has the purchase order been sent yet so um and then I got the call to go to EMI publishing um as an assistant and I think for a minute I thought graduate scheme versus you know assistant at EMI Publishing but I just had I had loved my time there so much that I I went with that and began my time in publishing and that's where it began. How much do you think you took away from your degree that you're able to utilize in your day-to-day in the business as you were going forward and have gone forward? I think there was the musical aspect of the degree like there was sort of in the studios, bands doing stuff, which I didn't do. I did more of the business side, but I sort of found, you know, there was a whole chunk about copyright law and things like that, that that, not that I necessarily had a passion to go down that route, but there were just parts of it, you know, when Keith was talking about the management aspect that he's obviously really experienced with, um, you just sort of took little nuggets of it that suddenly when you're working in publishing all the business, you suddenly realise oh gosh, of course that relates to that aspect. And I've got to say the one thing, I've, in fact, you and I have had, I've had the pleasure of knowing you for, for a minute now and, you know, been able to watch your career and you're one of the rare creatures that 
has only had a couple of jobs in this business and, you know, and really cemented and left the footprint wherever you've been. So it'd be really nice for you to talk about that initial moment where you got your start EMI publishing and what that meant to you. I mean, it meant everything. There were so many different people that were, you know, were amazing. I, I feel even from all the songwriters that were really helpful when I was sort of making the transition from an assistant to a junior song plugger, just, you know, Guy Moot, Fran Malian, you know, I, I remember doing work experience with Sarah, even Sarah Lockhart was there and just different people just were signing. It was such an exciting time in the music business back then as well. You know, Guy had just signed Amy Winehouse, he'd just signed So Solid Crew. These were some of the people coming in and out of the office, you know, even things, you know, like Tim and Danny would like come in and they would always be so friendly. And back then when you're just starting out, you're like, oh my goodness, they're like just amazing people just who have talking and I got time for you and a normal and and I just yeah as soon as I got the promotion which I didn't think I would get and I remember just thinking there's no way I can jump make the jump from assistant to the song plugger well next thing you know it happened and you're there working with these amazing frontline writers that have written these incredible songs who you've been looking at their splits and filing their papers away and then suddenly you're actually able to work with them and do things with them and then yeah, I guess it just it's a snowball effect and it just carries on. And I think over time, again, different people come in and out of your lives. Let's talk about the role of the song plugger because there's a whole world of people out there that, that really want to get an insight into the music business and those different careers and options that might be out there. So it'd be really nice for you to kind of explain the role of the, of the song plugger what that means and, and remove the curtain and and, yeah, and a bit of the mystery from of what it's all about. That particular role has definitely evolved and become harder over time. But back then when I started, I guess it was what, like 15 years ago, I was in that role maybe now. I was there of the time when it was like S Club 7 and Spice Girls and, you know, 5. And you could actually pitch songs and send them you know you'd have a little cd and it would say songs for whichever artist you know songs for kylie minogue and you would send your five songs from the songwriters you've got that you think would be great and they would actually get played and listened to and people would take songs whereas obviously now everybody you know knows who they want to work with they're not necessarily taking outside songs but just you know setting up sessions then it you could just put people together in some amazing rooms and what would come out of them and the hits that could then become huge off the back of you setting up two people working together is just great I think also the role of a song plugger and an A&R in publishing is the nice thing is I think your job is also to make sure you know all the labels so that you can get your writers across their projects so it's like it doesn't make your role so insular but um yeah as I say now it has become harder in the sense that you know so much talent out there already has their vision of who they want to work with let's talk about some of those rooms that you put together most of some of those hits you had at that time because you were clearly very, very successful and your curve has always been, it's been an upward one. So shout out to some of those big songs and those big hits that you were a part of, Amber. Let's not be shy. Yeah, when I was at EMI Publishing, um, yeah, that was great. There was um, Producer Two Inch Punch, Tiny Temper, um, Girls Aloud. I had some really great times when I was there. I was quite into the sort of 
funky house scene there as well. There was T2 Heartbroken, different one-off singles. Um, Do You Mind, Kyla and Paleface, which after I left then ended up getting sampled by Drake and was one dance. Some big records, Amber, some big, big tunes in there that you've been a, you've been a part of. <laughs> um, so no, I, I enjoyed EMI a lot. We want to get to the kind of, of that point in EMI where you make that change, but it's often said about the music business, it's not what you know, but it's who you know. Were there any influential figures that you can look back and that have pointed you in the right direction and that were crucial in your career? And what advice did they offer you? Guy Moot has been there from the get-go and he was always extremely positive about the business. He made you see that it really was doable. It wasn't necessarily about the degree. It wasn't about your age and your experience. If you've got an ear for something, you can do it. You know, he gave me the chance and promoted me from an assistant to the A&R role. And, you know, that was him taking a chance. You know, as an assistant, I worked really hard and I'd set up loads of writing trips and laser sessions but you know he, he he did definitely take a chance on my gut and instinct and um yeah there, there are so many different people and as a woman of color making your way in the business how much when you look back do you think the business reflected you or did it reflect you in any way shape or form definitely now it's so much more representational which is amazing but um you know, Jackie Davidson, amazing. Jade Richardson back then. There weren't as many women of colour as there are now as such. Did you find that you were able to build a support network around yourself at the time? Were those women of colour there to help you and support you on your journey? 100%. And you theirs? Yeah, definitely, definitely. So you've grown into your role at EMI as the song plugger. Where does it take you next in that journey within the EMI group? Yeah, so I went from song plugger to A&R manager, where I was signing more things, and then had a dalliance in the producer management world as well, and and moved more out of the song plugger role, more into A&R and producer management. So what made you decide on the publishing route as opposed to producer management? What was the calling there for you? I think as a publisher, you can be so involved in say a producer's career it's sort of almost like you are running their diary at points it sometimes seems like you know to be managing as well it sort of comes hand in hand the world of the record company is pretty much an open book and I think you know, a lot of people know about it but not everybody and certainly our listener may not know what happens in the world of publishing and its relationship to the wider business and how it actually functions. So it'd be really great as someone who's been so experienced and now has, you know, in one of the leading roles in the business here, to give an overview of what that job entails and how it interacts with artists. I mean, I think I always say your relationship as a publisher is very bespoke to the artists and the writers that you work with, but, you know, you are there to help look after their songs and get them and exploit them as in, in as many different ways as possible, you know, from film and TV to helping them with an album to pitching songs to also just the basics of making sure they're getting paid and they're getting their royalties to them and everything's registered properly. Um, But I think they're just, as I say, I think it's really unique to each artist, writer, singer, songwriter that you sign. You know, if somebody's deep in album mode and they're touring and they're selling out arenas, you know, you're not going to be blowing up their phone about, you know, do you want to co-write with whoever when, you know, they're, you know, on the road. Whereas if it's, say, 
a producer that you're looking after, you know, you're obviously going to want to make sure you're getting them in as many rooms as possible with different people. Obviously, you have that role of putting writers in with artists, making sure that they're getting cuts. One of the things that some people may not know about is that truncated word sync. Some of our listeners who aren't in the business, so again, it'd be really good to dive into the world of sync, given it's longer term. And Carla, just tell them what it's all about. I guess it's, you know, getting your music used in computer games, FIFA or in you know, soundtracks to films and trailers, TV production music. Um, It's just getting it out there on the screen as much as possible. Maybe writing scores for films, you know, doing bespoke music for something um, within the film and TV world, clearing your songs, making sure you're, as a writer, that you're happy with what your music is being synced and attached to, you know. I think what people don't see and don't understand is is that it can be quite lucrative but you know not just in a financial sense as well because there are other strands which is why it's so important in some cases for artists and their careers as well so the idea of having that shine on you know it might be the the theme music for a tv show or it might be the music that a station uses to intro their new season of programs it's a big moment to allow you to get you know, repeated use of your music out and get your voice, your act, your music into the world. Not necessarily for, for a lot of money, but it allows you to kind of go, this is what we're about. And I think that people sometimes don't understand that world, Amber, which is why it's really important when we have a publisher like you who can actually explain that world and make people realise what it can do outside of the financial incentives. Exactly. And you never know how and why you're going to break as an artist. You know, some of the biggest hit songs have been made in, you know, five minutes and they thought the end of the session had come and it's the song that goes on to break the artist and give them the career. Um, Just like, you know, you'd think, what does it matter if your song's played in Love Island, but then it can go on to be the most Shazam song and that's what then triggers a whole ripple effect. And I think there's also just the I think a lot of people can focus on the A&R and the sync side of publishing, but then I do think there is also just the bare basics of, you know, if you're having a global hit and your music's getting played all around the world, you know, who is making sure it's getting collected in all these territories and all your money is going to you? I think it's really interesting the way that clearly the world of sync and the placements has change the business to a certain effect over the years and the uh, the importance of in some areas of that what other areas do you think that the business has, has changed significantly whilst you've been a part of it i feel that artists are just doing it on their own nowadays you know they can put music up themselves they can become a success overnight on tiktok they're no longer looking to anybody to help make them a star it's like they they sort of have the tools at their own disposal to be able to break themselves as well which is great but also scary how does that make your job does it make it easier does it make it more difficult i think it makes it more difficult actually because i think people are more looking to you as what can you do to help me if i can collect it myself put it out there myself but i still think there is very much a place for what we all do and i think it only adds value to what somebody's doing on their own so i mean obviously we've talked about your time at emi and there was a time when that came to an end was that a hard decision for you to to leave emi was all i know it was 10 years you know um and it was an amazing 10 years but i've also really loved my 8 years at 
well, it's coming up to eight years at Warner Chapel now. And um, yeah, it changes good. I want to get to the Warner Chapel thing, but I want to talk to you about you as a woman, your career, and what the industry has meant to you and the changes it's gone through. And I think it's been a seminal time for all of us as people of colour. I mean, this is part of the reason why we started talking to incredible people like yourself. So you and I have known each other for a number of years. How do you think your gender has played out in the business? Do you think there have been times where it may have held you back? Do you think it's been advantageous, disadvantageous? And the same with being a woman of colour as well. It's hard because I do feel like as a woman in the music industry and a woman of colour in the music industry, um, it has been men that have promoted me. So I can't say in that respect that I feel like I've not had the promotions or not had the career changes that I wanted. I, I feel like I've been quite fortunate in that respect. So, yeah, I mean, there's definitely, there are times when you feel quite alone as a woman in the music industry, but, you know, and the hours and it can be all really all consuming but I you know sometimes I don't know if that is specific to being female as such I think most people can find it that way I'm really interested in that concept because it's something I've never heard from any of our other wonderful women that have been on the podcast and it's that theme of being alone could you just kind of expand on that a little bit more you're never alone there's always somebody you can call on but I I think sometimes it can be quite overwhelming you don't know necessarily if you are doing things right or wrong I found that I was sometimes quite quick to forget that I was maybe the only female in a room you know you'd walk out of a boardroom and you get so used to it being that you're the only female and actually female of colour in the room sometimes you're not consciously aware of it the whole time but yeah I think just sometimes you you wonder if you're doing well enough or your insecurities can get on on top of you and Maybe it's not somebody in the music industry you would turn to to necessarily talk about that. The idea of being consciously aware of your colour in the room or being a, a female in the room, do you think there are those moments that may temper the responses you give or do you second-guess yourself or do you hold back because of that? Yeah, subconsciously I think you most probably do without realising it. But as I say, I think I've been in the industry for so long now and I was at different stages of my career throughout I think where the industry is at now versus then is just completely different spaces and I guess it's harder because I was more junior back then when most probably there was such a bigger lack of diversity in the room versus how things are now. Which brings me on to my next point which is again how do you see business having changed with regard to opportunity for career advancement for people of colour? men, women who are coming up and the next wave of executives. It's amazing. You know, I think John Platt's incredible. He's a chairman. He is black and he's brilliant. My boss now, my the managing director is a woman of colour, Shani Gonzalez, and she is also American. You know, I think that's, again, incredible. It goes to show that as a young woman of colour running a company in the UK, that's amazing and really inspiring darkest ryan press they're just so glim yourself there are so many people now that you can just look around and feel inspired and motivated by twin b what he's doing over at 0207 def jam the, the twins it's you know it's amazing that's a huge change i think 
How important is it to ensure that we have more voices from women in the boardroom and those women around the table where those decisions are being made? I think it's really important. I think women have a different outlook and stance on things to men. I'm not saying one is right and one is wrong. It's just a different opinion and a different stance that I think you should always have both points of view in that sort of environment. And what has change looked like to you in the business? I mean, the business has talked, in the, particularly in the past two years, about the different initiatives they're undertaking, the fact that there is a real sense of diversity or a greater sense of diversity and inclusion, money being pumped into different programmes. But what does that change look like to you? What would you like to see the industry do to change? I'd like it to be a way of life, a consistent thing that isn't a knee-jerk reaction to something. It's just how it is. And it's a permanent fixture. I think it's great that so many changes are happening, but I don't want it to be as a result of something that has happened. I want it to just be how it is. And it's like a permanent fixture. And that's just how business and things are done. And do you think that's a possibility for the future? It feels like things are getting better. So I I do feel hopeful of that. I don't think people can run away from it anymore you know change needs to happen and I feel it's slowly beginning to start to happen and when you look around and you see those strong women I mean is there a coalition of of women that you turn to are there role models and people that you interact with in the business and if so who are they yeah absolutely Joe Charrington is amazing Grace I think is fantastic with what she's doing with Skepta Rada with Mabel Sukraj Johal um there are Lucy Francis Shah Grant Kamali they're just there are so many amazing now I'm completely under pressure I feel I've forgotten favorite <laughs> um there are just some really fantastic Bryony they're just some great females out there who are absolutely killing it and it's you know it's just really inspiring to look around and just see so many people just also killing it but then also trying to make a change you know Nadia Khan Lethal Bizzle's manager what she's doing Jackie Davidson what she's doing you know it's just the the knock-on effect is fantastic you know Shanice at YouTube fantastic that Rising Star Award she won so deserved it's like it's just I think there's a breath of fresh air for all the exciting women out there of all ages races it just feels like an exciting time at the moment and I have to ask you I mean please don't let this sound like I'm making you sound old but (laughs) you've been you've been doing this for a minute and you've seen some significant change and the rise of some great women executives coming through. Do you consider yourself to be a role model in the business? I don't. I just try and get on with what I'm doing. I mean, I guess now I've been doing it for so long. Um, maybe I'd like to hope so that I can sort of be motivating for someone trying to get into the business and that it is totally possible where I am now. And when I think back to when I was younger doing work experience, I would have never in a million years imagined that I would be doing what I'm doing now and have this career in music. And that's really interesting. Why couldn't you have imagined it? I mean, I can look back at my time when I first started and there were obvious reasons why I could never imagine it, but why couldn't you imagine it? I think maybe it's the school I went to. I think there's an element of you sort of go to school, get your 
degrees and your exams and your qualifications and I guess there was more of a formula that you think you're meant to follow as to where you're meant to end up and I guess sort of working in the music business you know was not one that sort of falls into that sort of category and yeah as I say I, I, I didn't know how broad the music industry was back then. Have you enjoyed the journey so far? I have I've loved it I wouldn't change it regardless of the stress I, I wouldn't change it. <laughs> Well, the stress has never seemed to wear upon you. So talking of stress, let's talk about your current role over at Warner Chapel, head of A&R. And it's an amazing position. And, you know, again, from the outside looking on, I, you know, I always take an enormous amount of pleasure as do some of my our other friends and colleagues kind of seeing the people, you know, rise. And it's been a joy to see you kind of grow in that role. So tell us about it and what you've been doing, who you signed and what the role entails as well. Yeah. So yeah, I'm, I'm really enjoying it. The role now I've been doing it for, uh, I've been here nearly eight years, but I've been doing the head of ONR role for about two and a bit years now. And the role entails making sure that the department's running well and we're signing the right things and hopefully signing some hits and making sure that everyone else, all the other ONR managers are getting the the things signed that they want and over the line and helping them get the deals done. So how big is your team? There are nine of us. And shout out some of those big things that you and the team have signed, because I know there are some big ones in there that our listeners would love to hear about. The team recently, we've just signed the Snuts, which we're really excited about. That was George. They had a number one album. We've just signed Toddler T, which was Sam. Yeah, we've been signing some really exciting stuff. And when I moved over, um, some of the site deals that we've done were Dave and Jay Huss and Stormzy. Um and still bangles and swifter so it's a really exciting scene that we've got you know paul smith signed m and ek we've we've got some brilliant writers over here and what does the future hold do you think for warner chapel it's really exciting i think with shani running it and her knowledge internationally and being from the us as well i think the future of how much we can really help artists internationally as well as within the UK is is great. And they're just, everyone on the team, I think, is amazing. I think they're all, you know, exceptional within their area and field at what they do. So what we always like to do at the end, Amber, is we rattle through half a dozen or so quick-fire questions that you can take as long answering or, you know, as quickly as you desire. So, yeah, what are your remaining ambitions in the business? Have you got any remaining ambitions? To have some more hits. Do you have a regret from your time in the business? Yes. There's certain signings I really regret not doing or pushing harder for. We won't, we're, <laughs> we're not going to talk about the ones you wish you could push harder for or the ones you regret signing. Yeah, Let's, exactly. We'll, we'll move on quickly to save everybody embarrassment. Who provides you with inspiration or who has provided you with inspiration? Um, my family, my mother and my sister. And when you look back at your career today, what's been the proudest moment in your career? Winning... My first eye for Novello. And what was that for? Tiny Temper Pass Out. Yeah, big tune. If you were talking to the young Amber Davis and she was about to kind of take her first footsteps into the business, what would you say to yourself? Keep trying and it's it's worth it. It will pay off. I think there are times when suddenly the long hours, you wonder if it's worth it or it will pay off and it, it does. And what advice would you give to that young woman 
also wanted to take her first steps in the business. Just keep at it and anybody you meet, you just never know how your past will cross again in life and, um, you know, just just keep at it. And is there anything you would tell them not to do based on something that you did do and that you learned the hard way from? No, I think it's important to also uh, like protect yourself and make sure you do have new time as well because it can be all all consuming and I think sometimes it's definitely important to have a slight separation just for your sanity. (laughs) So how do you find that time for you? I tend to do things that are non-related to music, um, you know, spend time with friends that aren't particularly bothered about music. Um, So it's just when you are with them, that's also quite nice because you're just talking about different stuff that's not in any way connecting back and tying in. And that's actually really good for clearing the mind. And what's your hope for people of colour in our business as we go through over the next five or 10 years? To carry on seeing amazing people paving the way for others and bringing more people through because it's it's amazing and it is possible. And I think if we each help each person, it just, the knock-on effect is is huge. And when you look back in five years' time, 10 years' time, when you're running Warner Chapel and you decide you're going to kind of just kind of just take go off and chill somewhere, what do you want Amber Davis's legacy to, to, to be? How do you want people to remember you in this business? That she tried really hard and had good intentions. I think that's probably the same for all of us and that's all we can wish for. Amber, I can only say, first of all, thank you for being who you are. Thank you for being an amazing role model for women in the business. And from the Did You Know podcast, we wish you all the very best and we hope to catch up with you again soon. Amber Davis, Head of a at Warner Chapel. Thank you very much for having me. I'm Adrian Sykes. Thanks for listening to Did You Know? A Downstreet production. Our thanks to Amber for sharing her stories and to my partner in crime and true pioneer, Danny D. Thanks also to Sean Springer, our production team of Cass Denton and Lanique Swartz, and to Ella Ruby on the socials. Our theme tune is composed by Vega Brothers. Honourable mentions to Dave Roberts and Tim Ingham at MBW for their support. You'll soon be able to apply to be mentored by the guests of the Did You Know podcast. Keep listening for further information. Did You Know is available wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure that you subscribe to never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review. And look out for our next episode, where I'll be talking with Zion Richards, artist manager and head of hip-hop partnerships at Pollen, about his remarkable journey and career to date. This was Did You Know. Until the next time.